Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're back in uh, Corinthians tonight after a week-long break. I so appreciated uh, Reverend Miller's ministry uh, last week uh, here at Redeemer. Uh, but we're in a almost a year-long study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're back at uh, what is perhaps one of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible, the, the love chapter. We're taking a second look now at, at um, and moving on in chapter 13. We have noticed that this chapter about love would have been first heard as a rebuke uh, to those who heard it. Paul is actually very pointedly telling them, you've been an unloving congregation And he's telling them how they've been unloving by showing them, telling them what true love is. Uh, And his description is very thorough. We walked through uh, maybe about half of it the last time. And if we're really hearing it ourselves tonight, we'll also be thinking like a Corinthian would, wow, I am in fact so unloving. That of course is the basic confession of a Christian about themselves. We don't boast, I have loved the Lord my God with all my strength, with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and I have loved my neighbor as I love myself. That is not what we confess. We confess that we haven't done those things. Uh, We admit weakness, we admit sin, and we say, Lord, forgive me, change me. Make me more loving like Jesus, because I'm not what I'm supposed to be. That's, that's what a Christian says about themselves. And so as we listen in on Paul tonight, we should be saying, Lord, forgive me, but also, Lord, teach me, shape me, mold me, change me, make me like Jesus. Let's hear God's word in that light from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll uh, go back to verse 1. And we'll read down through again verse 8. This now is the word of God. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, be our teacher tonight. We need you to open our eyes 
to behold wonderful things in your word. We need you to speak and glorify Jesus and draw us to him. We pray it in his name. Amen. Paul highlights, as we've said previously, the priority of love in verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, what's the point? He speaks of the priority of love. Then in verses 4 through 7, he gives you this list of 15 descriptors of love. He tells you about the practice of love. That's where we'll spend most of our time tonight. And then at verse 8, he begins a section on the permanence of love. Love, he says, never ends. And next week, we'll pick up what he says about it's never ending. So but let's consider the two main things. Very briefly, again, the priority of love in the first place from verses 1 to 3. Look, if you were a Corinthian, you tended to think too highly of displays of spirituality, spiritual power, spiritual gifting. You were easily impressed by things like miracles that people did, or prophecies that were spoken, or speaking in tongues. We thought it was really the height, in fact, of God at work in someone when they manifested some kind of extraordinary gift. That's what a lot of the Corinthians thought. Well, of course God is at work in them. Look at that crazy, miraculous thing they just did. And Paul comes along and he bursts that bubble. In between chapters 12 and 14, two chapters on spiritual gifts of of all kinds and varieties, miraculous and non-miraculous, but all by the Holy Spirit. In the midst of these two chapters, he inserts an entire chapter on what he calls at the end of chapter 12, the very last line of chapter 12, he calls it the more excellent way. Now, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And he moves away from gifts to the subject of love, neighbor love among us. And this is a good reminder for us in our day when Christians are too easily impressed with spiritual displays. Wow, we say or we think to ourselves sometimes, that guy could really preach. He must be so godly to have such a good speaking gift. Or we say, have you heard this band? They wrote the most amazing worship song ever. Ever. Ever, right? They must, we say, really love the Lord because look at the gift that they have. Or how about that guy who can quote the entire New Testament? There are people who can do that. And, And we can step back and say, that's amazing. But sometimes we say, oh, well, that person is so spiritual. They must really be close to God. And Paul says these gifts or these abilities given by the Holy Spirit mean absolutely nothing if exercised by people who don't also bear the graces and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Not just the gifts, but the graces. Not just the abilities, but the fruit. What are we talking about by fruit? Paul defines it elsewhere. What's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And last week we asked, and we'll ask it again, 
If love is so important, is it our goal as Christians to be people who love other people well? And if that's not our goal, why not? Paul says it's the most excellent way. In chapter 14, verse 1, he'll say, pursue love. Nothing matters more. It's far more important than speaking even the language of angels. It's far more important than having the kind of faith that it can actually move a mountain or get things done for God that we couldn't imagine being done. It's far more than becoming a martyr for Jesus, he says, giving your body over to be burned on behalf of Jesus. It's far more important that we be a lover of people for Jesus. It ought to be our priority. Is it? (laughs) Very easy for me to talk about. Not so easy for any of us to do, I understand. But what does it look like to pursue love? Well, what would love look like? And here's where he he speaks at great length about the practice of love in verses 4 through 7. He describes love in action. What it is and what it does. What it isn't and what it doesn't do. Uh, And so two weeks ago we looked at the first seven items on the list. So I'm going to quickly run through those again. And then we're going to pick up the last eight items. So I don't know how many points this sermon has. Two points, the priority of love and the practice of love. Or or mostly a 15 point sermon sermon on on the practice and description of love. But here it is. What does he say? Verse 4, love is what? Love is patient. We said this is, this is the Bible's word for long-suffering. We're called to suffer long. In other words, right at that very outset, he's saying to you, love calls us to love people when they haven't loved us or when they're hard to love. Maybe even when they've hurt us. We suffer long on their behalf. And then he says, too, love is kind. And here we said it's, it's the opposite of passivity. It's making yourself useful. It looks for opportunities to do good. Even if you've hurt me, Paul says, I'm to, I'm to ask, how may I bless you and do you good? Love, he says, in the third place is it doesn't envy. Love is Glad when other people are blessed, doesn't wish you had what they had, but God didn't give you, or really wish they just didn't have what they had that God gave them, because you're just kind of mad about it, or you're jealous about it. Love, no, love rejoices when other people get engaged, but you didn't. Love rejoices when people find their dream job, and you're not in yours. Love um, delights To rejoice with those who receive honor and accolades, even when we don't. Love doesn't envy, he says. But it also doesn't boast. It's not puffed up. It doesn't shoot its mouth off so others will think we're better than them. Love, we might say in our day, fights the urge to use Facebook status updates to shape the perception of others, of us. That we, among all people, We really have it all together. Love fights that urge. It doesn't boast. And it's not arrogant. Underneath the words of the windbag who boasts is that heart of pride, we said. 
It's always easy to see pride in others, of course, and it's usually very difficult to see pride in ourselves. But we might ask this question, um, if I'm mad that you are the center of attention in a room, why? Oftentimes it's, I'm mad because I wish I was the center of attention in the room. Why do I hate it that you tell the great joke and everybody listens to you? Because I wish I was telling the great joke and everybody would listen to me. That's just pride at work. It's competitive nature at work. And Paul says love isn't like that. Love isn't like me. Love isn't rude. It's courteous, he says. And it's polite. It's a little thing even. Right? We can imagine Paul saying love means not talking on your cell phone while you're checking out at the grocery store. Why does, after all, that checkout person not get our attention? Why do they have to be forced? Yes, forced. We're paying them to do a job for us at which they have to stay there while we stay there. And, and, and while they have to listen to half our conversation with somebody they don't know while they ring up our groceries. Why, why doesn't love put down our phone for a moment while we interact with them? I'm just talking to me here, folks. I know none of the rest of us do this stuff, but we can imagine Paul saying love doesn't pretend to listen to one person while being devoted to texting someone else. Love isn't rude. Love, he says in the seventh place, it does not insist on its own way. So as we said two weeks ago, if my attitude is, I'm going to do what I want, whether you like it or not, but don't you dare do what you want, whether I like it or not, then we're wrong. Love doesn't insist like that. When two lanes merge on a highway, why not slow down and give them that 10 feet of pavement they need for safety's sake? Why insist that 10 feet of pavement is yours and not theirs when it doesn't belong to you anyway? And before you can snap your fingers, you'll have passed over it. But we do these things, right? Love, he says, no, love, love shares, love defers, love does not insist on its own way. Well, that's a review of the first seven. Now at greater length, consider the next eight on his list. Love, he says, is not easily irritated or easily exasperated. It's not easily angered or provoked. It doesn't have a short fuse and a quick trigger. It's it's not ready to pounce on someone because they've interrupted us, or because they need us for something, or because they expect something of us. Listen, I realize nobody likes to be interrupted when the work is going really well, when we're cruising along in a high gear, or the book has just gotten to the good part. Nobody likes to be interrupted in those kinds of situations. But love, we might say, realizes this is God's providential appointment for me at just this moment. Love realizes God thinks there is something else I need to do with my time at just this moment. This person who has interrupted me is exactly who God wants me to love just now. And now, I, 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 every one of us, you work a job, you're a student, you're a mom at home, you have to carve out time where you know you're not going to be interrupted, hopefully, because you've got to get stuff done. That's not wrong. But we're just saying this, it's not easily irritated. So how's this going in your home? 
A pastor friend of mine, Scott Lindsay, says this, if you are habitually annoyed at somebody, always muttering under your breath a character assassination, clinging to ritual irritability, then you can be certain there is something going on between you and the other person that goes deeper. There's some unloving behavior that lies behind that irritability. There's some unresolved conflict um, that one or both of you is unlovingly and selfishly unwilling to resolve. And you've probably, you're probably self-deceived as well, Lindsay says. You've been telling yourself that things are okay. Things are fine. There's no problem here. I'm not really mad. We'll just move on. But you just continue to be irritated. Well, that hair trigger irritability is proof that you are mad. And something needs to be done. The conversation needs to be had. We need to engage with one another about that thing that so easily irritates. Or maybe it's that thing that's even worse that causes us to be irritated about everything. We have to deal with one another. We have to deal with those little things and those big things. Love, he goes on in the ninth place to say, is it isn't resentful. The NIV translates it, keeps no record of wrongs. The ESV has resentful here. The NIV translated it that way because often in the New Testament, the word used is the word imputed. For example, in Romans chapter 4, verse 8 here, uh, it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin, or against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's an accounting term. Accountants use this or do this all the time. They enter numbers in a ledger so the numbers won't be forgotten because people care about their money, their income, and their expenses. So it's an accounting term. And and so um, through the gospel, we learn that we are blessed because in it we learn that God hasn't counted our sin to us. He hasn't imputed or reckoned our sins to us. He hasn't held them against our ledger, even though they're ours. He hasn't kept a record of our sin and evil. He's released us from it. How did he do that? He accounted them or imputed them to his own son upon the cross. The good news of the gospel is that God counts his own righteous son as righteousness for you. And God counts you who are not righteous, you who are evil and sinful. He accounts your sins to his son and he dies for them. It's called the great exchange. And so you are free from your sins and you have received in Christ all the righteousness you need to be right with God by accounting, by imputing. This is how God has loved us in the gospel. Trust in Jesus and you'll know this love. So Paul is saying to us in terms of our relationships with one another, love doesn't store up the injuries others have committed against us. Put them in a bag and pull that bag out in the middle of a fight five, ten, twenty weeks or years later. Love releases. Love forgives. Love lets them go. Or look. 
obviously, if it's serious enough of a sin to carry around in your bag, it's serious enough to have a talk with them about that thing before it happens a dozen more times. We've got to talk with one another. Love does that. But forgiveness means not resenting, not holding on to and holding it against them, but freeing them. Love keeps no record of wrongs, he says. Tenth place, verse six, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not delight in evil. When you see others self-destruct, and it hasn't hurt you, so the danger isn't resentment on your part. You're just a bystander, and you're watching, and you're aware. You don't smile about it or spread it around, Paul says. You certainly don't encourage more of the like, you know, by standing in the circle like kids do on the playground and yelling, fight, fight, and really actually egging people on to fight. Well, you don't do that. Love is not an instigator of conflict by provoking others because we enjoy their sinful response of frustration. Love isn't immature like that, trying to provoke, rejoicing in wrongdoing. Love doesn't gloat over the failures of others. It isn't entertainment for the one who loves to see people self-destruct, real people, to see real marriages destroyed by adultery, to see famous people become infamous on the cover of People magazine or the Drudge Report. Here's a definition of good gossip. (laughs) There's no good gossip, I don't think. Well... Here's a definition of gossip. I'm not going to explore that. Here's a definition of gossip. This one is bad. Gossip is vice enjoyed vicariously. Did you hear about so-and-so? No. Just tell me all. Oh, 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 really? You ever do that? You You ever find... That there's a kind of pleasure in hearing about the sin and self-destruction of others in your heart. I know it runs deep. Just the urge to hear runs deep in my heart. I was sharing prayer requests with students and somebody mentioned that we should pray for so-and-so because they had had a bit of trouble. Now it was, it was shared just as discreetly as that without detail and out of love and concern for the other person. But as the minister in the circle, I wanted them to tell me just a little bit more. Not because I wanted to be more knowledgeably prayerful, but because I was curious to know what terrible thing had happened or been done by this person. Because our hearts take pleasure in wrongdoing. And Paul says love doesn't do that. Don't you find that kind of depravity in your heart? The unloving enjoyment of the troubles of others. But we should say love weeps with those who weep. It weeps when when relationships are destroyed and reputations are ruined. Love, in other words, refuses to feel holy at the unholiness of others. Love instead says, there but for the grace of God go I, not... Lord, thank you that you have not made me like that sinner over there. So love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That's the 11th thing Paul says. It's pleased when people walk in the goodness of truth. It's glad for them when the truth sets them free. And in the last four to move on, 
Paul uses a bit of hyperbole here, I believe, to, to show just how demanding love is. When he says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He says it bears all things. It, it puts up with people without constant rebuke and correction. It doesn't drag everything out into the open in order to humiliate people. It covers over a multitude of sins. It bears with, rather than uh, being in your face against or out in the public to expose. Now, obviously, we could say, while, while love bears all things, there is an appropriate place for the public exposure of certain kinds of sin in order for the glory of God and the good and well-being of people, even the safety and protection of people. Some sins simply can't be put up with and passed over with love and allowed to continue. The good of people demands that we not. If somebody's harming themselves and harming others, love intervenes. And there's way, different ways to intervene, but love aims to protect those who are harmed. But ordinarily, love bears all things. It puts up with a whole mess of weakness and failure and sin and hurt. And it believes all things. It's, it's eager to believe the best about people. It doesn't mean we're gullible. It, it doesn't mean uh, we have to call black white or white black or believe those who tell us so. But when people mess up and they explain themselves, love is too generous and too kind to be suspicious and cynical. C.S. Lewis says this, to love involves trusting the beloved beyond the evidence, even against much evidence. No man is our friend, he says, who believes in our good intentions only when they are proved. No, he says, the suspicious man is blamed for a meanness of character, not admired for the excellence of his logic. Love is like that. It believes all things. It doesn't harbor the attitude of, yeah, yeah, but I know you don't mean your apology. I know you're going to do it again. I know you will never really change. Love doesn't act that way. It gives the benefit of the doubt. Love has to believe, therefore, that God can do what God can do. That he can change people and therefore we have hope. You know, when Christians are dealing with other Christians, it means you believe that he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion. God will make them like Jesus. It's not going to happen fully and completely today or tomorrow or in this life. But God is working on them. We have every reason for that hope because God is faithful and he will do it. Love is optimistic and hopeful. And in the 15th place he says, and when they fail after that, what does love do? Love endures. It endures all things. It's a military word. It means to sustain the assaults of the enemy. And you keep on enduring because love never fails. It never gives up. And so to conclude, we should think of it this way. Love, Paul is saying, is, is an action. Love, in whatever situation you are, you bear up under. 
you believe the best. And when the evidence is stronger and the doubts are higher, you choose to hope for the best. And when your hopes are dashed, you watch and you wait and you grieve and you endure. That's what love does. And that highlights the decisional nature of love. Love clearly here is not an emotion. Love here is not a feeling. Love is a choice. It is a person deciding inside of you, in your heart, to love that person. You're not basing your love on the fact that that person is lovable. That that person gives you wonderful reasons to love them. But you are, in fact, choosing to love. Now, what if you end up being despised by or despising the very people you live with? A spouse, parents, siblings. What do you do? The Apostle Paul says you love them. And as my friend Dick Tuning says, if you can't love them as your spouse and you can't love them as your family, you love them as your friend. And if you can't love them as your friend, then you love them as a stranger. And if you can't love them as a stranger, then you love them as your enemy. But you love them. Now, where would you get love like that to do that? From being loved by God that way. His love isn't based on the loveliness of its object. He didn't look at us and say, they're so good and lovable. No, His love is the opposite. He loved us when we were his enemies, when we were extremely unlovely people, when there was absolutely nothing for him to gain by loving us, yet he chose to love us. God, the Apostle Paul says, shows his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the love of God sent the Son of God To bear the wrath of God for the people of God so that we can be blessed by God with every spiritual blessing God ever gives. And so we can enjoy it in everlasting fellowship with God the giver. Love, Paul says, as you have been loved. You get that love from being loved by Jesus in this way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know it's far easier for me to talk about it and for all of us to listen to it than for any of us to do it. And we haven't done it. And we are unloving people. And I pray you'd forgive us and cleanse us and make us more like Jesus Christ. Help us to abound in his love for us. And abound in that love for others. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.